Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Katriona Gold. Today, I'm thrilled to be interviewing William Walters about his new book, State Secrecy and Security, Refiguring the Covert Imaginary, which was published with Routledge in May 2021. William Walters is Professor of Politics at Carleton University in Ottawa, where he's cross-appointed in both political science and sociology. He is also currently a Faculty of Public Affairs Research Excellence Chair. And his new book argues for the importance of secrecy as a key concept for understanding power in liberal democracies. Welcome to the show, William. Uh, Thanks very much, Katriona. So I'm really excited to discuss the book with you. Um, Before we get deep into the book itself, I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about your intellectual trajectory and how you came to write the book. Uh, Yes, I, I mean, in the longest sort of sense my intellectual trajectory took me from studying chemistry uh, when I was an undergraduate in the UK um, to political science or politics more generally and um, I think I got interested in secrecy first by getting interested in publicity and wondering what is publicity and and, and what what is the public sphere and, and and spending several years um, teaching a course on the sociology of publics, you know, a course that looked at people like Habermas and Lippmann and Dewey, some of those sort of classical works, as well as more contemporary uh, research on on material publics. Um, and, And so I sort of came to secrecy intellectually, I guess, along that line. Um... Partly thinking that, and, and I guess the Habermas structural transformations of, of the public sphere was a sort of um, key moment in that, because the book does deal to some extent with secrecy, although it's clearly a sort of side issue for Habermas. But there was something about the way he started that book. He starts it by saying that um, the his goal was to interrogate liberal democracy or bourgeois societies, I think he put it, um, from the angle of one of its most privileged categories. And, and by that, you know, he's referring to publicity. To, to, so he's doing a kind of imminent critique of, of bourgeois society from the angle of one of the things that it holds up as kind of special and distinguishing and, 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 and uh, hugely significant. And, and I thought, well, you know, you could sort of flip that on its head and, and take secrecy as well and, and, and to sort of interrogate liberal society from the angle of secrecy, I thought would be really interesting because secrecy compared to publicity has such a ambiguous kind of status within liberal democracy, right? It's both kind of, at least in functioning liberal states, there's a recognition that secrecy is kind of needed for security reasons, 
Um, and at the same time, though, it's held in deep suspicion. It causes a lot of unease. It's not something that we're particularly proud of. You know, it's not as though we sort of say, we're a secret society. Brilliant. You know, that makes us special. So I thought, you know, secrecy would be a very interesting way in a sort of angle of inquiry, if you like, that, that it could be carried out on many different um, areas or, or fields, you know, so that the book looks as one chapter kind of looking at at migration from the angle of secrecy. So, you know, I try, I'm, I'm trying to go beyond the idea that secrecy is confined to particular institutions or secrecy services. That's great. Um, well, that's, uh, yeah, a really interesting uh, angle to come at it from. I mean, I have to say, I think you do a really excellent job, you know, here, uh, you have done as well, but also in the book itself of situating your book in relation to multiple literatures from the get-go. So this is really quite, you know, wide-ranging in terms of the things it touches on. And I think in addition to delineating your own contribution, the book also functions as a really useful introduction to these growing interdisciplinary debates around the role of secrecy now, and also earlier debates across various disciplines. So, I mean, I suppose I'd like to ask you first um, about how you start the book. So you say secrecy fundamentally structures how we encounter politics in the liberal democratic regimes of the global north that's sentence one and i'm wondering i'm wondering if you can unpack this a little more for us how is secrecy political um i would i would say secrecy is not necessarily political i think i mean i tend that tends to be my default position on anything really to sort of say well it's not necessarily political the task is rather to understand how uh, a, a particular phenomenon or experience is made political right to sort of explore the work of politicization i'm sort of critical of of perhaps scholarship that presumes that we always already know where politics is and, and what it looks like so i mean for example, in, in the way that I teach a course on secrecy, sociology of secrecy, um, in that course, you know, I, the course isn't just focusing on state secrecy. So, for example, I use little example, little cases like I take a cartoon. Uh, no, it's it's, a, it's an image from a, a, a children's book. It shows two little girls whispering in the playground. And I, you know, use that to start thinking about secrecy. Um, and, and, you know, you can look to people like Goffman there to sort of help you, because um, Goffman, you know, famously writes about the presentation of self in everyday life, the sort of performance of front stages and backstages. And, and you, you can sort of be quite empirical about a whisper, right? A, a whisper is a particular practice. You might say there's even an art of whispering. You know, some people do it better than others. Um, that when, you know, children whispering in a playground, you know, what's going on there? It's sort of, well, you're kind of signaling to other children that, that the two of you have just passed a secret, perhaps, or that there's something going on between you that you kind of want other people to know, but but you don't 
want them to know either. So you're setting yourself up with a kind of aura or, or distinction. And all of this has sort of been very well, you know, written about since the time of Zimmel. And then clearly, you know, Goffman takes up a lot of things from from Zimmel and develops them in, in, in various everyday contexts. But anyway, all of that's to say then that that keeping secrets and secrecy is not necessarily political. It's about the context in which secrecy um, happens. And, and so when secrecy is institutionalized or, or um, brought into play in, in situations involving states, then often it does become political. But again, the way in which it becomes political is something we have to be sort of empirical about, not just sort of impose um, some kind of one-size-fits-all framework. And so one of the things that I was trying to do in the book is um, to move away again from an analysis of secrecy in terms of some sort of general theory or universal framework. And, And I kind of seen that in some work that, although it's sort of interesting, it will set up, for example, secrecy and publicity or secrecy and transparency as these sort of t- two key concepts and, and say, you know, why do we have more of one? Uh, why do states, you know, lean towards one or the other at particular times as though, you know, transparency were not a highly specific, culturally um, relative kind of phenomenon in its own right? So I'm not interested in the kind of general theory of secrecy, I'm rather more interested in um, contextualizing it. And I guess, it, you know, since uh, since writing the book, I've sort of been reading more uh, Wittgenstein and, and, and thinking that Wittgenstein's idea of games and his idea of family resemblances is probably a good way to approach secrecy, because it allows us to talk about things without presuming that there is any one thing in common, right? Zimmel says, I'm sorry, Wittgenstein says, let's look at games, you know, um, there are ball games, there are board games, there are uh, games that people might play uh, with one another, there's uh, bouncing a a ball against a wall, right, and and, and we call all these things games, but it's unlikely we can find any single thing that they all have in common, and I think we could sort of do that with secrecy too, instead of thinking that there is a core or essence to it, treat it more in terms of family resemblances. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the things about the book that is really striking is the sort of array of techniques or possible ways um, that I think you you deploy or suggest for getting at the question of secrecy. So maybe we could expand on that now and sort of what it means to study secrecy itself. You know, um, I think in the introduction that there's a genre of intelligent studies, which is very much concerned with studying secrets, which is mm-hmm. not the same thing as studying secrecy, uh, at least not in the same vein as we might study other concepts. I think you name citizenship, sovereignty, or justice as examples of concepts that are more well studied um, and understood mm-hmm. as important to inquire about. Um, but how does one study secrecy itself? And how do you personally hear in this book study secrecy um i think um, i mean the point about citizenship sovereignty justice i guess goes to my one of the reasons for writing the book was a sort of sense that secrecy at least in say critical security studies um it's a bit of a been a bit of a blank space 
Um, it's been a bit of a kind of um, poor relative, you might say, <laughs> or weird uncle, right? That people kind of know about the weird uncle, but they don't, don't want to go there for whatever reason. Um, so that we devote no end of time to sort of theorizing surveillance and security and sovereignty and citizenship. And we have all sorts of key thinkers and textbooks and studies and symposia about these phenomenon and and yet not so much about secrecy you know so I felt it was a bit like a, a an elephant in the room and 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 kind of deserves to be confronted more sort of more fully and more directly you know so rather than say thinking about the Snowden revelations from the angle of surveillance which is kind of how they've often been made sense of you know why not make sense of them from the perspective of secrecy and practices of disclosure and so on and so forth. So it's really about changing the lenses a bit. Um, but then, yeah, you raise the question of how to study secrecy. And I guess, well, to go back to your other point, that, that you know, we, uh, we can look at, say, the shelves of any bookshop uh, such as they exist and you go to the p political science section or the international relations section, and, and there's, there'll be tons of books about, you know, inside America's covert war or behind the lines of the uh, wars in Afghanistan and and um, and, and Yemen and or, or inside the Pentagon, you know, books with with this kind of, of title. And presumably those kind of books kind of sell fairly well because <laughs> they're on the book they're on the shelves of of waterstones and the kind of things i write aren't but um you have to you know get them by mail in my case um so they these books sell pretty well and i mean and a lot of times it's because they're excellent books but i think it's also because secrecy has this this aura i i would call it a cachet you know to sort of play on the fact that Cache is sometimes something both about the mark of the hidden, but it's also a mark of distinction uh, that marks something out as special, you know, like the cache of a famous perfume. But um, so these books have a certain cache, and um, because we do consume secrecy, we find it appealing, we find it attractive, we kind of want to know more, it piques our curiosity. But they, so they, they promise us um, kind of an inside story about exciting or disturbing phenomena, but for the most part, they don't. They're not really interested in doing a kind of sociological or critical analysis of secrecy itself. So they don't really unpack the practices and the techniques and the concepts and the experiences of of secrecy that they're, they're much more focused on you know what was the the secret what was the content what was actually happening inside the the CIA or on this particular covert mission so whereas i'm in the book i'm not so interested in though in the um maybe the policies themselves i'm more interested in in exploring the practices and the concepts of secrecy that are that are brought into play in those situations. Now you say, how does one study secrecy? Um, and I think that this move away, because I'm sort of, well, what I'm talking about is a move away from the hermeneutics of secrecy as 
as Claire Birchill has put it, you know, a move away from or at least a, a suspension of the kind of fascination or the question, what is the secret? What is its sort of content towards a focus on form? And, and in the book, I kind of call this the flat ontology of, of secrecy, kind of borrowing that idea from actor network theory. And um, in, in it's sort of like a way of saying, well, let's treat secrecy as a field, a field of actors, relations, concepts, practices, materials. And let's treat it as a, as a flat field, as in let's not privilege any one part of this field um, from the outset. Let's say that any part of this field could be in principle um, as interesting or as worthy of study as, as any other. So, um, um, so you know, to go back to those books that, you know, line the shelves of somewhere like Waterstones or Dylan's, if that still exists in Britain or here we have chapters, to, to, to those books, um, you know, you could take someone like Seymour Hirsch who's, you know, perhaps America's best known investigative reporter, somebody who has, you know, since the Vietnam War delved into and exposed all kinds of uh, of secret controversies or in the UK case, someone like Chapman Pincher, you know, who for many years was the the intelligence reporter for the Daily Express. Um, You could take persons or personae like the investigative reporter and make those the focus of of secrecy studies because they absolutely deserve to be sort of treated in their own right as sort of important persons with important or particular skills and particular relationship to this thing that we call official secrecy or state secrecy. So I guess all of that's to sum up is to say that, you know, one of the advantages of perhaps of a flat ontology of secrecy is that it opens up many new areas that we might have considered, well, you know, I'm not going to find any new secrets by looking at Chapman Pincher because he's dead and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, if, if, if it's not the sort of uncovering of secrets that you're interested in, it's so much as practices, subjectivities, concepts, relations, then a study of Chapman Pincher or or Seymour Hirsch or or other interesting investigative journalists, reporters, organisations becomes a a worthwhile and potentially fruitful thing to do. And, you know, this has been done to some extent, like Christopher Moran at Warwick, uh, I think, did a number of interviews with Pincher while he was still alive and um, has, has written some interesting work that I drew upon in the book uh, about Chapman Pincher, but but only in, in my case, in, in a footnote. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think secrecy is, and after reading this book now, obviously, um, it's. I think it's one of those things that once you start looking for it, you're going to find potential sites for investigation everywhere, right? And it's And it's absolutely very present in in current political discourse and recent political discourse too um you know uh, conversations about um yeah uh, russian or chinese secrets come to mind um you know that kind of new cold war discourse very much um 
secret forms of interference, you know, lots of, lots of, uh, yeah, strands of journalism or talking about geopolitics now that seem to hinge on certain conceptions of secrecy and its effective dimension. So I like how you provide that kind of um, conceptual entry point into thinking about thinking about these questions which are very much alive um and as well as i mean as well as the sort of provocative conceptual and i think also methodological con- contributions which i'd like to talk about more um as well i think each of your case studies is also fascinating empirically i wonder if um we might discuss uh your second chapter now if you could give us an overview, because I understand um, that's a sort of particularly personally resonant um, discussion too. So your second chapter on Orford Ness, an island full of national secrets. You're going to have to you're going to have to lay out where that is, um, what that is for our listeners, um, and yeah, how you investigated it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Orford Ness is. Um... A, um, a sort of military testing, it's in ruins now, it's, but it was a military testing area or base um, on the almost the most eastern um, coast of England. So it's in Suffolk, it's on the bit that sort of sticks out the most into the North Sea across the, across the waters from the Netherlands. And... Um, Orford Ness is, um, it's a kind of spit, so it's a shingle spit that has kind of formed, um, so it's not quite an island, but it's a sort of very thin peninsula, um, several kilometres long. Um, So you see it from the town of Orford, which is a kind of small fishing town, you you kind of look across the water to the peninsula and, and from the small town, it looks like an island. And, you know, if you go to Warford today, um, the the site today is in ruins and it's owned and run by the National Trust. And uh, when you look across the water at it, all you see are the sort of silhouettes of some of these structures where um, a lot of military research was done in the 20th century. And the structures themselves, uh, the, the two most kind of... Um, prominent or distinctive ones are called the pagodas because they kind of look like pagodas and you kind of see the outline of these pagodas and you really I mean I remember as a child wondering uh, what and this was in the 1970s wondering you know what the hell is going on over there right so I was very kind of intrigued as a child and spent a lot of time on the beaches in that part of Suffolk where I grew up and you know that 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 it's littered with centuries of military or defensive infrastructure, right? You've got Martello Towers that come from the time of the Napoleonic Wars. You've got the kind of uh, anti-tank and anti-landing uh, kind of concrete things that were put there for World War Two, And then you've got um, Orford Ness, which was, you know, began life in... World War One as a kind of early um, air force, uh, play, a kind of aeroplane experimental place. 
Um, there was work being done on some of the earliest uh, experiments with radar in the 1930s, I think, um, and a lot of work on, on, on bomb ballistics in the 30s and 40s, you know, like measuring and, and, and recording what happens to bombs, how they fall when you drop them from planes. Um, but I think it, what, you know, pushed Orford Ness into the world of, of you know, the uppermost secrecy, if you like, was a, a nuclear uh, or nuclear um, research in the 1950s, um, and you know the it was Aldermaston was the headquarters for the atomic weapons research establishment, but Orford Ness was one of its kind of um, testing areas, if you like. And we're not talking about live testing. We're not talking about exploding um, nuclear materials, obviously. Um, you know, Britain uh, had the disadvantage, you know, compared to the Soviet Union or the United States. Britain's not a vast continental state with, with desert areas um, where it could do these tests. So instead, Britain had a very colonial slash post-colonial nuclear weapons testing regime that involved getting Australia to give it access to both islands and and interior desert areas like Maralinga and visiting sort of, I mean, visiting this kind of nuclear violence on the indigenous people who had lived in those areas. And Orford Ness, I think, was part of this network which we still don't have you know a really rich account of i don't think it was part of this network in as much as what a lot of what was being done at orford ness was called environmental testing and that meant stress testing bombs you know seeing what kind of temperatures and vibrations and pressure changes and, and accidents could they withstand so in other words trying to sort of recreate on the scale of these large concrete laboratories situated on these Suffolk beaches, all the conditions that, that a bomb would experience, um, you know, from being like shipped out of the UK and you know, transported to Australia and, and then tested. Um, so in a, in a certain sense, these, these uh, laboratories that were built at Orphanus were like flight simulators for, for the nuclear fleet. Um, that Britain was putting together in the 1950s. Um, and the, you know, the, the other types of, of weaponry were then tested as well, but by the 1970s, for various reasons, the site um, was uh, decommissioned and closed down and kind of allowed to ruin. And then it was bought in the 1990s by the National Trust, who now open it to the visiting public, uh, in a fairly restricted way uh, during the summer months. Um, so I was sort of interested in, in researching it. First of all, I think just it, 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 through a kind of biographical personal interest, you know, it was a place that I'd always been fascinated with. And, and it's the way I start a lot of research projects. It's not like I have a very clear research question that I sort of is out there in front of me, and then I sort of find cases to sort of make sense of them. More, it starts with a case, you know, a, a case that 
I just find fascinating or intriguing, perhaps for reasons that I haven't fully worked out. And then I just kind of dig into the case and, and, and sort of work through its its materials and its 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 details and 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 stuff just falls out you know or or, or or comes to the surface through through that rather immersive process so in this case you know going back to your question you know, how do you research secrecy well it, it was a sort of multi-pronged thing but partly involved a number of visits to this site and then spending a lot of time talking to national trust um officials who were either managing it or worked there as um, volunteers, you know, as what are called rangers who, who give people conducted tours. Um, it was especially, especially important for me to, uh, to when I got to talk to a guy called David Warren, who I uh, write about in the book, because he had done a lot of oral history work. He was himself a veteran who'd worked as a, uh, as a scientist at Orford Ness um, and, you know, he has a kind of continued a lifelong interest with the place and, and, and had worked there as a, as, as a volunteer and as a, as a, a kind of guide. Uh, but it also done uh, a lot of interviews with other former um, workers there um, right across the range, you know, from people who were um, senior scientists and engineers to people who were police guards to, to people who worked. Um, on bomb ballistics and, and sort of, you know, did that detailed work of, of, of studying the trajectory of, of falling bombs uh, to people who might have worked in the canteen or, 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 or as draftspersons, you know, designing, designing things that they weren't sure what they were designing, you know, because this was the nature of, of, of a need-to-know um, uh, work organisation. And so from that kind of, those kinds of inquiries, I sort of learnt about what I called in an article everyday secrecy, um, because I think we have this sort of, one of the features of, I guess what I call the covert imaginary in the book, is that, that secrecy is sort of dramatic, because, um, you know, often we secrecy comes up in public life when something is revealed and there's a lot of heat and light, a lot of excitement, a lot of drama, a lot of spectacle, a lot of controversy. And all of that, you know, is very interesting and, and, and merits uh, uh, exploration. But there's also a very ordinary side to secrecy, a sort of everyday secrecy, the ordinary rather than the extraordinary. And, um, you know, say by by uh, working through these kind of oral histories that that David had assembled in particular, I was able to kind of get a much better understanding of, of, of secrecy as it manifests in you know, for example, how people would sort of work in their different labs and then meet together in the canteen and and how they kind of navigated what they would say and what they wouldn't say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean. It's a really interesting case study in this this idea of yeah everyday secrecy does contrast with I think yeah the dramatic ways in which we often do think about about secrecy and and disclosure. Um, I'm wondering. So you mentioned this term, the covert imaginary, um, which you describe in the book as expressive of how we think and what we feel about the state in liberal democracy. And I'd really like if you could um, 
give us what you mean by the covert imaginary. Um, explain that to us, you know, in a nutshell or not, um, as long as it takes, um, because I think it's such an interesting concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, it was a something that helped me pull the book together and, and sort of clarify to myself what I was doing and how the different chapters were related to one another. Because, you know, you could say the chapters look quite heterogeneous. Um, you know, one, there's a chapter about Orford Ness, an island full of national secrets, which was a title I got from TripAdvisor. You know, that was just a, one comment that somebody had posted. And I like that idea that, you know, they, they, they talked about they got on the ferry, to, made the 10-minute journey across the water, and there is this island full of national secrets. <laughs> kind of um, like a museum, almost, you know, mm-hmm. that, they, that they collected and gathered there. And I think that speaks to the covert imaginary because the covert imaginary, as I understand it, is is the sort of um, the set of assumptions and sort of patterned ways uh, pertaining at a particular time in a particular society that kind of govern how we understand secrecy and what we understand by it. Um, so the covert imaginary is not necessarily a false account of secrecy, but it is a limiting one. So, for example, the sort of idea that the, the, the what is public and what is secrecy are necessarily opposed, that, that there's a sort of zero-sum relationship between the public and the secret, is, you know, I would say it, that's a, a sort of strong um, assumption of the covert imaginary. It's something I sort of tried to challenge in the book by p- partly working through interesting writing on open secrecy, you know, which explores how things can be both public and secret at the same time. Or um, another of the chapters looks at the 9-11 commission and the sort of public inquiry into 9-11 where, you know, you see that the work of public, you know, again, the covert imaginary, our kind of everyday assumption is that inquiries open up secrets or they don't, you know. So a lot of times we criticise an inquiry because we say it's a whitewash, it didn't didn't get at the truth, or we sort of invest all sorts of energy and desire and, and, and politics in the demand that this inquiry should open up uh the 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 files and, and and tell us the truth so again we have a sort of assumption that it's it's either or and i think when you look at at the everyday or well, not the everyday but the, the the work of public inquiry it's what um the anthropologist of science stephen hillgartner calls i think the work of selective disclosure or the work of um the study of selective flows of information and, and that, you know, he, he sort of says it's whatever domain we're looking at, you know, if we're looking at, say, scientific research, we have to understand that that, that it's not either or. It's that, that, that closure and disclosure, as I kind of use it in the book, kind of work together hand in hand so that doing scientific research involves all kinds of, you know, producing new kinds of closure. Right. We There's the stuff that we that we um, gather but we don't reveal there's the sort of the information that we collect that we don't share there's the the stuff that we didn't put into the article that we end up publishing perhaps because it was sensitive or perhaps because we're thinking about we want to put it in another article or perhaps (laughs) because we're just saying we don't want to give too much away 
So as as researchers, we're engaged in both closure and disclosure. And so, you know, um, it's not a matter, going back to what I said, the flat ontology of secrecy, it's not a matter of there are some people who are the secret keepers or some institutions that, you know, where it's all about secrecy and then the rest of us is kind of open. Rather, it's about understanding how practices and experiences of closure and disclosure are woven into all sorts of areas, you know, so that we, in our research activities, a lot of us become secret keepers, you know. We call it research ethics a lot of the time. You know, what when we're taught or are told how to do research ethics, it's about what, you know, what we should disclose and what we shouldn't and how we protect sources and how we protect information. And, you know, what, if we call that secret keeping, then then we see it in a slightly different light and we stop sort of seeing ourselves as the sort of intrepid revealers or exposures or truth seekers and, and then the others being the sort of secret keepers that we want to sort of open up. Um, we see that, you know, again, secrecy is woven into all sorts of things. Anyway, so that, that, but I've got off on a tangent, but anyway, the covert imaginary, if you like, is partly those... Uh, assumptions and presuppositions that I kind of wanted to challenge. Another one being that that secrets are sort of kept in a particular place, you know, hence the island of national secrets. Or that they, if you think of our, our, our standard, our stock images, you know, the veil, the veil of secrecy, let's pull aside the veil and see what's behind. As though the secret is a sort of fixed object that's lying behind a veil. And once we pull the veil aside, aha, now we know what it is, right? Mm-hmm. But such a view misses out on all the, you know, all the transformations and trans- translations and, 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 and mutations that are involved, for example. So a public inquiry doesn't necessarily just open up files. It produces, like if you look at the case of the 9-11 inquiry, it produces a whole new archive of materials, each with its own status of, of classification, each with its own code number. Um, so it brings an entire archive of knowledge and, 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 and material things into existence, which itself is shot through with relations of secrecy and, and disclosure. Anyway, so the covert imaginary is, is partly about challenging our sort of sometimes cliched or standard ways of of thinking about secrecy and that and those sort of cliched or standardized ways are what I call the covert imaginary so I'm sort of trying to give a name to what I think is problematic but the covert imaginary also has a, a sort of aesthetic dimension and here I sort of very much draw on and, and take inspiration from scholars in the humanities people like Timothy Melly um, uh, and Matt Potolsky who've written books about, um, in Potolsky's case, the national security sublime, in um, in, in uh, Melly's case, what he calls the covert sphere. You know, and that is to basically look at uh, the extent to which, or, or the ways in which there is an aesthetics of secrecy that's sort of embedded in, in all of the movies and the books and, 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 and sort of cultural ways in which secrecy is, is rendered meaningful and intelligible you know if you think of the 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 writings of someone like John le Carre you know what had to it's quite 
profound how much someone like Le Carre has shaped what we understand by secrecy and secret services. Eva Horn would be another important contributor to this study of the aesthetics of secrecy and, and Claire Birchall. So the covert imaginary then is also then about um, uh, giving a name to this this um, this aesthetic dimension of, of secrecy, which we've kind of, I think, often taken for granted. We've assumed it, you know, sort of taken it at face value rather than sort of studied it as a, as a, as a, as a dimension of, of, of experience in its own right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such an interesting concept, and it's it's one that I that I wish that I'd had when I was yeah working on the U.S. military because it, it's something that you the sort of the place of secrecy, right, and and revelation. Um, you're reading all these fantastic journalistic accounts and you know genuine revelations, but it's revelation after revelation, and the, obviously the idea of the secret and a U.S. military secret in those is doing a lot of work on its own, and I remember thinking about this at the time and thinking there was something off, but I didn't have a sort of language. And so I think you provide something um, really useful here in this kind of cultural framing of the the covert imaginary. Um, and since we've, since we've touched upon it a bit already, um, maybe we could talk a bit about uh, your third chapter on the 9-11 commission. And I should say, and I should have said earlier, um, there are four substantive chapters to the book, um, and maybe maybe before we we get onto uh, the nine eleven commission, perhaps you could tell us um, just in brief what what each of those are and does. So we've talked about Orford Ness chapter two. Um, so what about chapter one, deciphering Venona, time, space, and the mobilization of secrecy? Yeah, so as you say, there are there are four um, sort of substantive empirical chapters, and and that's partly about just the way I work. Like I'm not very good at doing kind of abstract theory. I'm not. I only really have a very philosophical head, um, so I'm much more comfortable kind of working in a grounded way, like doing you know theorizing things, but always starting with with something quite concrete, and 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 that's why the book. That's partly why the book takes the form it does, um, but also because I don't believe that there is a, a universal thing called secrecy. But anyway, so the first, yeah, there's four chapters. The first chapter looks at Venona, um, the second one, Orford Ness, the third one, the 9-11 Commission, and the fourth one, um, anti-deportation uh, activities and, and aesthetics and politics. Um, but the first chapter then, the, Venona was... Um, was a very secret um, uh, cryptanalysis uh, project initiated by the United States in about 1942. Um, Britain became a partner by about 1945, as did um, some of the other Commonwealth countries like Australia. Um, and Venona ran until 1980. So it's really interesting that it was sort of in operation for about 40 years um, and it was but it made most of its big breakthroughs in the 1940s and it was breaking into Soviet diplomatic and secret service communication that was traveling through 
either open airwaves or, or, or telegraphs, or telegram, as telegrams along cables. So I was really interested in the whole infrastructural dimension of what it took to send, to turn messages into secrets, if you like, by encrypting them through various techniques and then send them through the open air. You know, so it's sort of this idea that, that secrets are kept behind a veil or locked away in a room or in a vault or in a basement somewhere. It's not entirely wrong, but it's incredibly limited and partial because we also have the fact that, you know, secrets, uh, secret things are kind of all around us in the air in, in, in this sort of sense. And, and, and sort of looking at, at, at secrets and signals was a good way to get at that. You know, and here I sort of took inspiration from Trevor Paglin, who was writing about um, when he, one of his early works on stealth fighter. You know, how do you, how do you make a stealth fighter plane secret? I mean, the plane itself has been engineered to be as, as invisible as possible, but you can never sort of make it completely disappear. And, and aside from the physical plane flying through the skies itself, there's the question of, you know, the, 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 the workers who get sick from working with the toxic paints and, and all of the other kind of infrastructure needed to produce this thing. You know, you can't entirely hide it. There's always a sort of remainder. There's always a trace. Or in the book, I sort of draw on the idea of parasites and interference from um, uh, the name has escaped me for a second. The parasite. Anyway, it'll come back to me. Um, and, you know, and I sort of think of it as interference. It's, it's, it's ways in which the material quality or character or the, or, of the things that are being um, obscured interrupts or intervenes or, or sort of asserts itself despite the best efforts. So in this case, the fact that... Um, sending the for the soviets to secretly be sending these messages around the world they were encrypting them with what seemed to be the most secure of all methods known at the time which was the one-time pad you know which is basically two sheets of random numbers that randomize um the message and you can only decode it if if you've got the same pad that was used uh, to, to, to code it and, and, and so each pair of pads is unique and you and, and, and they kind of assume that well our messages cannot be broken but you know at some point they ran out of paper and printing materials probably when the Germans were invading the Soviet Union and they sort of duplicated some of the, 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 the pads and introduced a little flaw uh, a, a certain amount of repetition into their messages, which provo- pr- 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 provided a kind of Achilles heel or a, a form of interference. Um, anyway, so each chapter, yeah, it, it, it is based in in, in case um, material. And um, sorry, then what was the question beyond sort of identifying what these chapters are about? Um, well, you talk about uh, each of the chapters as sort of a, a probe um, into yeah, and so I, so I did want to ask you um, yeah what you mean by that um, or why 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 probe is the term you you choose there? 
Yeah. Um, well, firstly, because probe, it felt like the right word for what I was doing, right? I was taking on, perhaps foolishly, because, you know, I don't have a background in intelligence studies and there are many people who do who devoted their entire careers to working on it um and so probe for me had a sort of exploratory feel to it but also a sense that one wasn't setting out to be um comprehensive about something you know probe doesn't reveal um if you think of a space probe, you know, it's not like we get a full picture of Mars from probes. Probes are extremely partial and selective. They kind of, they're launched into a, a, a vast um, phenomenon and they, and they bring back, if we're lucky, some slices, some cuts, some materials, some samples that you know one can then do further work upon so i felt that i was kind of launching into huge areas of uh, of knowledge of experience of of um of policy not with the intent of providing the kind of a master synthesis or anything like that but in order to sort of turn up a little it maybe a little archaeologically turn up sort of interesting materials that I, that I could use in this kind of quest, if you like, to do um, some more useful theoretical and conceptual work on secrecy. You know, so uh, again, Venona has been well documented by a lot of historians and a lot of security scholars, but very few of them mm-hmm. had shown, had been interested in it, you know, from the angle of its practices and concepts of secrecy that, you know, most of the people, historians who'd written about it were much more interested in, well, what does it tell us about the extent of Soviet espionage in the United States in the 1940s? Or a lot of it, again, Venona had been used to sort of adjudicate these kind of Cold War disputes about, you know, well, what was Ethel and Julius Rosenberg really spies or not? You know, what was the nature of their spying? Um, but again, the sort of the uh, the technologies of of secrecy um, that um, are at play or at stake in Venona just sort of had been overlooked or or taken for granted. So I I kind of wanted to dig into what is a one time pad, you know, what is this this piece of paper or this document that's used to to to, to generate random numbers, you know, what what's the document actually made from? What size is it? Um, uh, what does it look like? And, 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 for example, that opened up questions about the size of things. You know, do, 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 does making miniature things, to what extent is miniaturization a technology of secrecy? And I think we can see these things going right back to Zimmel, but they haven't really been adequately thought about. You know, Zimmel has this nice line about, because he's also most famous as a sociologist and philosopher of money. And Zimmel says, well, the moment at which, you know, human societies have the money form, it helps them with secrecy because it's sort of easier to kind of pay somebody 
to keep quiet perhaps or for information to give them a, a note than than previously where you might have had to given them something like an ox or a, a cart or, or something large and, and conspicuous, you know? So I like this sort of sense that the size of of material things is a factor that we should think seriously about if we want to historicize secrecy and understand its changing forms. And and so those that, that, those are the kinds, some of the questions that I was asking then when I was looking at Venona, uh, you know, doing this sort of probe work. And, and I hope then that, you know, since it's exploratory, that it provides mm, inspiration or, or um, provocation to other people to sort of delve into things that, you know, have been quite well documented and written about already in the social sciences, but not necessarily from the angle of secrecy. So I'm kind of saying, well, you know, this is a new angle to approach uh, often well-researched things. Um, and uh, But, but by, by changing the angle, then, then we can come up with some new interesting findings. And, and that also then goes back to your question right at the start about how do we study secrecy? You know, I'm saying it's not necessarily about opening up closed boxes or, or, or discovering things in archives that have been hidden or, or classified up till now. It's sometimes about, you know, using uh, or taking cases that, that are already richly documented, both in secondary and primary sources, but, you know, coming at them from a different angle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so I, that's something that you do so very effectively in the final two chapters as well. So um, your third chapter about the 9-11 Commission, secrecy and public inquiry, and also your fourth chapter, anti-deportation, migration and the aesthetics of secrecy. So we won't have time to get into both of those in detail, but I did want to um, ask if maybe you could give us a bit more of a taste of the third chapter, the 9-11 Commission, there's a story there about um, Kissinger and his role or not, which, uh, yeah, I thought was a very interesting bit of color, um, how you approach this. But yeah, if you want to talk a bit about that chapter, um, yeah, that'd be great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So the 9-11 Commission, I think people know the story fairly well. Um, and I was interested in it. I mean, one thing I think that methodologically, because each, you know, each, each chapter gives you, it's a probe, but it's also a potential research strategy. So it's sort of about saying, well, secrecy is a sort of multi, multi-sided polymorphous experience that we can sort of examine from multiple angles you know just like we could make the investigative reporter the focus of our study rather than just what the investigative reporter tries to reveal Um, we can come at this field of secrecy from from many angles and um, so each each chapter is a kind of a research strategy so the awkwardness one's kind of saying well place place it's interesting, isn't it, in the covert imaginary that place has a special connection to secrecy, it seems. You know, if you think of Kafka's castle or, or Harry Potter in the chamber of whatever, 
I'm not too up on Harry Potter, but I do know that there's something about secrecy going on in Harry Potter, and and often it involves spooky, ominous, cryptic kind of places, you know, with monsters and whatever in them, double-headed people, and um, and goblins, and so um, yeah, that chapter is about place and and what what does place mean in relation to secrecy, and and how can we use place as a sort of probe or as a research um strategy the um the venona chapter is very much about taking a techno scientific or security project and and following that over time so that the orphaness one follows place over time the venona one follows a a, a decrypt or crypt analysis project over time the um the 911 chapter sort of says let's take public inquiries as interesting fruitful places for secrecy research and let's treat public inquiries again in terms of the sort of flat ontology not necessarily from the angle of well what do they reveal you know what, what do they actually produce the truth of of 911 or of grenfell but you know thinking about the public inquiry as a form in its own right as a sort of irreducible space phenomenon experience and and let's try to 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 understand something about secrecy from looking at the work that public inquiries do so for example um one of the things that that was interesting about the the 911 inquiry is it, it the 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 um well, it's very researchable in the sense that you've got memoirs written by the commissioners themselves. You've got um, some excellent work written by investigative reporters like Philip Shannon of the New York Times. You've got a whole lot of material written by the families of the 9-11 victims who kind of constituted themselves as a political subject and without whom the inquiry probably never would have taken place, you know. So um, the the chapter begins with, with some representatives of the family sitting down to talk with Henry Kissinger in his midtown Manhattan offices, you know. And this is because Kissinger was Bush's first choice to head up the inquiry. And you think, wow, <laughs> what was Bush, you know, that it, it, it says something about bravado, doesn't it? If If he thought he could get away by by appointing, you know, a man whose very name is kind of like a synonymous with realpolitik and, and and state secrecy and thought he could get away with it. But anyway, that he didn't get away with it, partly because these uh, families of the victims um, politicised this this decision. And, and the fact that, you know, Kissinger had to, felt he had to sit down and talk to them is evidence enough that they were capable of, of constituting themselves as, as subjects who had a right to speak about security issues despite not having, you know, any kind of qualifications in the area of, of secrecy or any military experience. So it's an interesting study in, in, in that sort of Ranciere sense of how political subjectification happens, you know, in a very contingent way. Um, 
But yeah, the so the there are many rich sources of documentation that that open it up from many angles and, and allow you to sort of get into the minutiae, the details. Not so much about you know. Again, I I wasn't probing the question of of did this plane actually hit the Pentagon uh, or not? You know, was it faked? So much as you know, looking at the logistics of of putting on an inquiry like that. So. For instance, it's very interesting that once the commission has been appointed, one of the first things they have to do is acquire premises. You know, they have to find office space. They have to hire staff. And, you know, to hire the office space, well, you have to then have the secret services run these um, security checks on the buildings themselves and sort of set up protocols and set up detection arrangements. and, and so. All of that's to say then that, you know, that you can see in microcosm there that that the work of disclosure, the work of producing uh, some kind of official truth about a controversial incident required all sorts of new secrecies and securities to be brought into existence. So, again, it's not a question of, of either or so much as understanding what I call in the book infra secrecy, you know, the sort of understanding secrecy at the level of these infrastructures and and logistics and technologies and and of the sort of um, way in which closure and disclosure go together hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and your final, I mean, chapter, that's kind of yet another lens onto these questions of secrecy. I don't know if you'd be able to give us a brief mm. rundown of the sort of methods you're using there so chapter four mm-hmm. anti-deportation migration and the aesthetics of secrecy yeah very briefly the last chapter is i mean it comes out of a whole other research project that i've been doing on what i call air deportation which is to look at the sort of relationship of airlines and airports to deportation um, but the chapter very simply takes three interventions by journalists, filmmakers, um, activists, um, who are all sort of taking a critical view or making a critical intervention on deportation. But what it's showing is that they all use visual practices. In one case, um, it's a map created by a kind of collaboration between investigative reporters and data journalists. It's a map showing um, the flight paths of French police planes deporting people. And, you know, at one level, this is sort of, you could say, well, it's about, it's kind of politics of exposure. It's sort of saying, look, here is what the state is doing. But it's also a kind of aesthetics of secrecy, I argue, because the very method itself really resonates closely, say, with the work of, of the journalists and investigators who exposed the CIA's uh, rendition flights, right? Using a similar technique of saying, oh, what are the flight uh, numbers of these planes and, and, and can we sort of generate maps of their uh, aerial geography by gathering data from various sources, including... Uh, the radar and flight tracking and making this phenomenon visible in that way right so the moment that mm-hmm. you then apply a similar kind of method albeit with nothing like the same 
degree of detail to deportation flights, you're kind of making them visible. You're kind of deploying, if you like, an aesthetics of secrecy that was first kind of fashioned in the realm of terrorism and anti-terrorism and associated with the scandal there and associated with, you know, serious human rights abuses. You're now projecting that or transporting that into the arena of migration policy into the world of deportation and and anti-deportation you're sort of i argue in the book you're kind of constructing deportation as a particular as a particularly secretive and suspicious and nasty activity by you know utilizing that particular aesthetics so what the chapter is kind of arguing then is that, that if we can talk of something called secretization, you know, which is partly about using aesthetics from the covert imaginary to depict things as secret, then then these depictions happen not just from above, but f- from the side and from below. So that, you know, counter politics, if you like, protest, drawing public attention to bad things sometimes happens by acts and aesthetics which construct those things as secretive. Now, I'm not saying that deportation is not secret, because it is. It involves all sorts of operational secrecies, you know, like try getting information about the contracts that exist between, say, the Home Office and and security companies or the airlines. There's not a lot of material in the public domain. They cite commercial confidentiality. Oh, these are private companies. You know, we can't expect them to sort of uh, tell us much about their operations. So there is a lot of secrecy. But what these um, these interventions are doing, you know, is building a counter politics around the aesthetics of secrecy. They're sort of flagging the this activity as suspicious and bad by intensifying if you like uh, its secrecy so all of that's to say that you know we can look at the ways in which secrecy is kind of mobilized aestheticized deployed from below and that too is a sort of interesting angle or aspect of politics to 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 understand we shouldn't think of secrecy as you know there is the secret state and and it's all secret and it's securitized and it's malicious. And then there are the outsiders who are trying to make sense of it or trying to open up its black boxes. I mean, there is that, but that's only part of the story. So I'm sort of also interested in how secrecy is produced and deployed and mobilized and transformed from below. And I, all right, so above and below are not the best metaphors, but they'll have to be. Well, I think that's uh, that's a fantastic place to end. I um, yeah, that's fantastic. I have I have one more uh, question for you though before we go, um, which is: Can you tell us a bit about your other projects? So, what else have you been up to recently, um, or maybe what are you planning to do next? If you're able to say, hmm. well, the I mean, I mentioned the other sort of major empirical project that I'm engaged in, which is air deportation, which is sort of the the starting point of that project is to say, well, we have a huge amount of writing now and scholarship on deportation, but we, uh, uh, again, a sort of elephant in the room, if you like, is, is, is 
airlines and aviation, you know, so in Britain, Germany, France, probably about 95% of, of people, of the people, of the populations that are physically and, 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 and uh, moved or expelled go by air, right? And yet we haven't sort of paid much attention to what does it take? You know, what, what goes on? How do you actually physically move people on planes? It's by no means a straightforward phenomenon or a straightforward um, thing. It's a, it's a complex and sometimes very messy, violent um, business. It involves, for example, secrecy. It involves uh, keeping um, information uh, about when you're going to be leaving what plane you're going on, you know, keeping that hidden or, 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 or suppressed so as to sort of mitigate, say, protests, uh, mobilizations against a particular deportation. So the, the, the wider project, and it's a collaborative thing, I have two um, collaborators in France, Clara Lucadet and Cédric Parizeau. So we're looking mostly at, at Britain, France, and then Mali and Sierra Leone as sort of countries of, of deportation connection or, or, or destination. And we're looking primarily uh, at the role, the involvement of, of the airlines and, and the airports. And again, it's a question of angle, like I said, with secrecy. It's about what, what, what new things do we understand about deportation once we look at it from the angle of this, this bit in the middle this kind of mediator, this sine qua non, you know, without the planes, how, what would deportation look like? You know, there's like Bruno Latour's line about if you want to understand the difference that, uh, that a material object makes, like a humble door closer, then sort of take it away and see how would the thing operate without it? In this case, what, how, what would deportation look like without aviation networks? Right. So clearly aviation makes a huge, plays a huge mediating role in structuring deportation in the way that we understand it in uh, contemporary societies. And so we should take aviation very seriously. We shouldn't just sort of treat it as a self-evident thing that puts policies into practice. Um, so that's the, the other empirical thing I'm doing in terms of a, where I will go with secrecy I'm not quite sure but one one project that I'm kind of playing with is to write a book that um, collects a series of interesting authors um, who've sort of contributed to or, or help us think about secrecy you know and, and I was sort of calling it very playfully something like secrecy and or secrets and power from Arendt to Zuboff you know so that you get the A to Z there and it's, again it's not it's not to suggest a canon of thinkers but it is to sort of say well it's interesting that in you know in political science we have all sorts of um, collections that sort of pull together thinkers around a theme like citizenship you know we have all sorts of books in geography like key thinkers on space and place but we don't have anything like that for for secrecy so perhaps we we it would be nice to do this sort of reading of thinkers like Arendt who who Arendt's not you know often treated as a 
theorist of secrecy, but there's plenty in her work that does sort of lend itself to deepening and 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 and, and thinking secrecy in, in interesting ways. So anyway, that would be a project that is sustainable under lockdown conditions, should they continue. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, I look forward to seeing it. Um, I hope, um, although hopefully we'll have more favorable conditions for research soon. Um, thank you so much yeah. for joining us today, uh, William. Uh, this has been Catriona Gold interviewing William Walters of Carleton University about his new book, State Secrecy and Security, Refiguring the Covert Imaginary, which is out now. Um, thanks again, and uh, until next time. <laughs>